everyone. This is Dallin Wortham, host of the Charter School Connection podcast. I'm really excited for today's guest because we interview a lot of teachers, a lot of administrators, and our guest today has a little bit, something a little different to offer. So I'm really excited for you to be able to listen to his insights. We have Daniel Caselli from BiQ. He's the president over at BiQ, and we're going to dive into a little bit about his past and how he got into education and what BiQ offers today, and just some tips and tricks for growing charter schools. But before we do that, we're going to go ahead and just thank our sponsor, Enrolio. Enrolio is our free enrollment lottery software that makes enrolling students very easy, smooth, like butter, slipping into your enrollment funnel. So go check it out. But without further ado, Daniel, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Dallin. Pumped to be here. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about how you got involved in this charter school world. Yeah, happy to. So my career has always been in education and I was a religion and history undergrad major. And for the other humanities studies, people out there, probably similar experience where you graduate and you realize, oh, I have to find a job. And the, the reading and writing that I did, a lot of transferable skills, but tends to not be as immediately evident of where to take that degree. So my sort of trajectory in education was I did a brief stint teaching. I worked in youth ministry for a little bit and then ended up actually landing at an education technology startup because I was really fascinated with the intersection of business and education and how do we serve the education market and think sort of more holistically about improving educational outcomes. So I uh, spent some time in Washington, D.C. at a company called EverFi, specifically working on financial literacy curriculum and, and kind of spreading the message about teaching personal finance at a young age. And then uh, from there, worked at a company called Class Technologies, working on really throughout the pandemic on reimagining virtual learning and how students are engaged over a, a Zoom call or, or fill in the blank virtual platform. And today I have the privilege to work at BiQ and BiQ is a national group purchasing organization specifically for charter schools. And our work really focuses on helping charter schools do more with their money. There was actually an article in the Wall Street Journal just, I think, two days ago talking about this, but charter school enrollments have grown tremendously, but the funding still kind of sits at roughly 30% less than the, the traditional public district. And so at BiQ, we try to help charter schools do more with their money through group purchasing. So basically, if you're not familiar with group purchasing, we aggregate the collective spend of a bunch of schools. So we work with thousands of, of schools all across the country. And then we use that potential spending power to go negotiate discounts with big suppliers. And so practically what that means is we do the full RFP process and we have suppliers compete and offer their best pricing benefits, terms, et cetera. And then those contracts are free for schools to use. And we really hope that that provides a ton of value on the school side by allowing the schools not to have to go out to bid for everything, but also know that they have competitively solicited contracts and pricing and can use those freed up resources or dollars to focus on innovation in the classroom. So that was a really long-winded way of how I got to where I am now. In terms of charter schools specifically, I think what what I find so fascinating about charter schools is, is there's this unique blend of independence and innovation mixed with a focus on serving students who, you know, often fit a unique uh, category where the traditional system wasn't working for them. And you could compare two charter schools and they could look completely different. And I think that's what's so fun about working in this space and serving this community. 
I think that's awesome. So I'm going to try my best to not just turn this into one big BiQ commercial, but I think it might go that way just because I think it's so helpful what you do. So I'm going to give an example, an analogy, and you tell me how accurate it is. And if I'm way off, we'll edit it out. If okay. I'm off, and it Sounds good. But I have a person X in my life. I won't say who they are. And they have financially struggled their entire life. And they, their marriage is deteriorating because they're having to work more and they're trying to make more and more money. And their family doesn't see them as much because they're trying to make more money to get out of debt, pay these bills, but their expenses aren't going down. They're going up as they make more money because they make more money. They think that they can play golf more. They can buy new cars or whatever. And so they're just kind of in this forever cycle of we got to make more, we got to make more, but the results aren't changing. They're still in the same old, same old over the past 20 years. And so with a charter school, I feel like it's very easy to say, we need more students. We need more students. We need more students, which is true. Who doesn't want more students? But if spending isn't under control, and if you as an administrator are so sucked up in getting more students and doing, filling out RFPs and you're using your time elsewhere other than building up your school, then your school is going to suffer because your expenses are still high or going up and you're not dedicating your time to what really matters. And so with BiQ, you're giving schools more funding by better dis bulk discount offers, group purchasing, and you're giving them more time because they're not having to do these RFPs and going out and building these relationships. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I have never thought about it in that same way using the lifestyle creep analogy. But certainly, I think the principles are the same. As I mentioned, my background on the financial literacy side, you know, it's the same principles for private business, public business, a school, your personal finance life. You know, you sort of have two options. You can grow top line or you can cut expenses or you can do both. And I think in the school setting, most people who are passionate about education or even let's go with founders, because there's all these incredible founders each year as charter schools are growing and new schools are opening. Most people don't set out to start a charter school because they love P&Ls and financial forecasting and deciding which desk is best for the students. They're passionate about the students. They're passionate about the outcomes. They're passionate about their local community. They have a, a philosophy on you know, instructional design. And, you know, when you get into your first couple of years, you realize, oh, in order for my school to be successful, I actually need to make sure that I'm developing a thriving organization. And part of that starts with having a firm financial setting or, or foundation, if you will. The I think the report that gets quoted the most on this is the Center for Education Reform did a big study on why sc charter schools specifically closed down. And the number one reason was financial mismanagement. And the number two reason was sort of general administrative mismanagement. And so, you know, I, I think the reality is on, in terms of operating a successful school, there's a whole slew of different things you can do. We focus on one really tiny sliver of that pie and, and that's purchasing and procurement. And so from our perspective, helping schools kind of streamline that process and know that they're getting quality pricing, you know, quality goods and quality service allows them to focus on on the other slices of the pie, if you will. And so, yeah, we we focus on 
that expense side, but also as, as schools grow and scale, they don't always realize that there's a lot of power that they have on the business side to negotiate with these suppliers as their volume grows. And what we see all the time is kind of a reactionary purchasing strategy. I, I was talking to a school just a couple of weeks ago and they mentioned, hey, I've got 600 different vendors that you know our accounting team is keeping track of and we're buying paper from five different places and I'm not really sure why we do that. And so that's just a, a simple example of there's opportunities to consolidate and, and streamline and get better pricing. And at the end of the day, you know, free up time, whether that's for your finance team or free up resources in terms of your actual, you know, expenses line items. That's awesome. I, I really like that you brought up that study. In a previous episode, I was interviewing two awesome gentlemen from Trinity Basin. And I kind of asked them, why is Trinity Basin growing and expanding and moving, getting new campus locations when other schools are just struggling to keep their doors open? And they mentioned like, we just have an awesome CFO. And I was like, oh, uh, that's interesting. Cool. And then they went on to say other things, but that was one of the big points. And just like you mentioned, just financial stability is one of the big reasons why doors will close. And so, yeah, I think that's spot on. Well, fantastic. And so if I'm a charter school administrator and I am wanting to get more financial stability or just kind of compound my interest in regards to what I'm currently doing and I'm listening to this podcast, what's the first step in regards to working with BiQ? How does that work? What does that look like? Yeah. So I'll, before I talk specifically about BiQ, I'll, I'll speak kind of more broadly when it comes to purchasing and, and procurement, since that's kind of the area we focus on. Like I said, there's, there's a whole litany of different things that play into, you know, this, this particular topic. So I, I don't want to act like we have all the answers, but I think there's a couple big rocks that you can focus on. So the first thing would be to think about spend consolidation or, or standardization, and then optimizing systems and processes. So that's a lot of buzzwords. What does that actually mean? <laughs> consolidation, basically not buying the same things from lots of different places and not spreading yourself incredibly thin in terms of your suppliers or supply chain. Practically, that might mean doing an exercise with your team. Maybe it's in the summertime. Maybe it's a project that someone can take on. If you don't have a procurement team, a lot of charter schools don't have a procurement team and someone in finance or operations handles purchasing. So you could go through an exercise where you just look at who you're buying your things from. Things could be everything from technology to furniture to office supplies and school supplies. You know, where are those things coming from? And where is their duplication of suppliers? So if we go back to that paper example, commodities is a really good place to think about because a piece of paper is a piece of paper. Unless you're a paper aficionado, you're probably okay with, with the standard eight and a half by 11. And so that's a silly example, but you can extrapolate that out across a whole host of, of categories. And so consolidation is, is step number one that we like to talk with schools about. Step number two is optimizing systems and processes. And when I say that, I mean, how does something actually get purchased? That could be someone picking up the phone and placing an order and then manually cutting a check and sending it to that supplier. It could be you have a full integrated, you know, 
ERP system and you're using an e-procurement platform and you've set up punch out catalogs and, you know, across all your campuses, there's one person that's allowed to place orders within that catalog. And then it streamlines the approval to someone at the central office and then the CFO signs off on everything. So it can be really sophisticated or it can be, be pretty basic. But what you're looking for on the systems and processes front is really having clarity amongst your organization on the basic questions. Who, who's allowed to purchase things? Where are we allowed to purchase things from? And do we have goals around spending? What's our budget look like? And if you kind of go back to those first principles questions, a lot of times opportunities will sort of bubble to the surface to say, oh, if, if we tweak this or if we actually communicate to our staff who's going to be placing orders, or if we onboard a software that helps us manage all this, maybe we don't ever have to write checks, or maybe we don't have to keep track of you know, these invoices or these payment terms in a, in a file. Maybe we can just be alerted by a piece of software that you know, payments do. So there's a whole array of kind of manual to automated that, that can be implemented at your school. And not every school needs a super complex purchasing process. Back to your original question, how would someone work with a buy queue? What we do when we connect with a school is our, our program is free for schools. So buy queue was born out of the Colorado League of Charter Schools. The league wanted to start a purchasing program and the program sort of grew to being involved with other associations and then kind of spun off as its own organization that serves charter schools, you know, outside of the the league. And so schools can use our contracts. And so that's as simple as if you go on our website, there's an orange button in the top right that says sign up. If you fill out that form, basically that just affiliates your school with BiQ, our, our purchasing organization. And you'll hear from myself or someone on our team to set up a call and we'll talk about your current suppliers and what your purchasing needs are. Are you opening a new campus? What are those big capital expenses that you're envisioning? And then we'll talk about the supplier contracts that we've negotiated. We let the schools evaluate that pricing. They may be getting better pricing from a local provider. And we say, awesome, keep working with that local provider. If you're getting great service and, and what you need, double down on that relationship. And schools can evaluate our, our pricing and our contracts. And if they like what they see, they still work directly with the supplier they would just do so on a pre-negotiated solicited contract. And so it allows those, those schools not to go out, out to bid. They don't have to run their own RFP, particularly in those big categories like furniture and office supplies and school supplies. And that also frees up time to, to go out to bid on your own for really specialized services. Maybe you're putting in a new turf football field or you're looking for some professional development services where a big national supplier might not be the best fit and you want something customized and local. That's where we encourage people spend your time going out to bid for those more specialized services or, or categories, and then uh, take advantage of, of a group purchasing contract for some of those bigger categories. That's awesome. So one thing that came to my mind as you were speaking is, would the same principles and the same systems and processes work the same no matter whether you're a small 100 student campus or a multi 20 campus organization would it would the process be the exact same yeah that's a good question not not necessarily i think there is such thing as kind of over engineering your your systems and processes 
the, you know, the, the keep it simple ethos definitely applies when it comes to purchasing. So it, it's hard to give a blanket answer just to talk through a couple of the scenarios. It, it depends on how your school or your network is set up. So it's going to be totally different if you're a large CMO or EMO that's managing 20 campuses, 40 campuses, 100 campuses, because there may be things that you purchase centrally for all of those campuses and the, the individual schools don't worry about it. And then there may be other categories where each school has a, a business manager locally that's doing the purchasing or the procurement for other categories. So it really depends on how your, if you're single site versus multi-site, and then if you're multi-site, meaning just a couple campuses, or if you're a, a network, and then it gets even more complicated if you're a multi-state network and you're navigating different state procurement laws. That's probably not maybe the answer you were looking for, but I think it goes back to starting with some of those basic questions. The questions themselves are the same regardless of the school. That's where there's some commonalities is, okay, how are we purchasing today? Who are we purchasing from? You know, what's the current system or process? And is that system or process working well? Do people like that system? Does, is it quick? Is it easy? Does it track the things we need to track? Is it manual? Is it eating up, you know, financial resources? Is it eating up human capital? Those are the types of questions that you can ask whether you're a, a first year school with a, 100 students or you're one of these really large multi-state networks. I think that's awesome. Uh, that definitely answered my question and more some. So fantastic. Do you have any maybe examples, stories, or just tips and tricks that you would give to a charter school administrator if you just had 10 charter school administrators in a room right now and you just had a few moments to kind of share with them any stories or tips and tricks? Do you have anything that you'd like to share with them? Yeah, that's a good question. A lot of the things we've already talked about are things that I would encourage administrators to to consider. Kind of like we were joking about at the beginning, nobody gets into education to necessarily work on, you know, business systems and processes. What I would encourage a group of administrators to think about is really sort of what you brought up with the Trinity Basin example, which is think about the business side of running a school as kind of the the means or the engine that powers a lot of the educational outcomes that these administrators are so passionate about. It's why certain management organizations have been so successful and you see them grow year after year after year, both from helping, you know, found new schools, but also schools turning to them and saying, hey, can you help us manage our back office? Can you help us acquire a new building? And so rather than kind of argue about which model is better or which one makes sense, I would encourage administrators to think about, hey, if we get the operational side right, that that powers a lot of our ability to grow. And so the combination of really strong operations with passionate educators, I, th I think is a powerful combo. And that's why we need people like that, that Trinity Basin CFO that was highlighted. You know, we need people who are are really passionate about education, but also know that their gifts and talents lie on the the systems and processes side of things. And so, yeah, I, I don't think that there's any silver bullets that I would jump to. 
at least in our area of expertise when it comes to purchasing and procurement. But I would in- encourage administrators to think about their investments in kind of the, the business side of things as a means to grow and scale and, and growth and scale ultimately leading to hopefully better student outcomes. Yeah. Well, I think I'm not necessarily giving you like the easiest softball questions and setting you up and you're still just hitting dingers and hitting home runs. <laughs> Luckily, you're playing. Um, the book just over my shoulder, um, Atomic Habits by James Clear, he mentions you don't rise to the your goals you fall to the level of your systems and so wherever your systems are at that's typically where your organization will be running and i have a friend who has a very successful non-for-profit charity organization and anyone that's worked in the non-for-profit world knows that that's it's brutal because you just constantly need to be motivating you constantly need donations and it's hard to keep that story alive within people when there's so many things calling for your attention. And I just asked him, how, how have you been able to do it? How have you been able to grow a not-for-profit like you, like you have? And he just said, I just run it like a business. The, the biggest issue with non-for-profits is that they run their non-for-profit like a non-profit. It's like, <laughs> right, they run right. it like a business so that you have these margins to then be able to fulfill your mission. And so I think what you just said speaks volumes. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. I love the the James Clear quote. It's yeah, it's that's a convicting one when you think about it, both in your personal life and and in the workplace. Very, very true. Well, rock on. Let's go ahead and unless you have anything else, let's just wrap up with a couple fun lightning round personal questions if you're down. Cool. Let's do it. Cool. So let's go ahead and say if you had a billboard, me and Daniel, actually, before we hopped on the podcast, mentioned that this is a Tim Ferriss question. If anyone's listened to the Tim Ferriss show, he frequently asked this question. But if you had a personal billboard, what would it say? Do you have anything off the top of your head? And if not, we can move on to the next one. So I told Dallin just before we hit record that I didn't have an answer to this question. So with very little lead time, I'll share <laughs> one off the cuff. And this is totally recency bias because my wife and I were talking about this this morning. I would probably say, everyone else is faking it too. Uh, and I know that sounds funny, but we were talking about how, you know, as, as we've gotten a little bit older and as we're having children and feeling like, are we really that much smarter or more mature or, you know, quote unquote adult? And I think about that in the workplace a lot with, you know, titles and leadership positions. And in my experience, when I sit down with with leaders, everyone's just trying to figure it out. And certainly, we have a lot to learn from each other. And the reason that one comes to mind is because hopefully, that is a encouraging thing to other people to think, oh, you know, I can figure this out too. You know, no, no role is too big. No task is too daunting. If other humans have done it, I can figure it out too. Well, I- I'm really glad I asked that question. And I'm really glad that you said that because there was one time I was in this mansion, this huge house of this CEO. He's been the CEO of tons of different companies. He's he's sold so many different companies for millions of dollars. And I'm just just kind of, you know, enjoying myself being there. He's a very pleasant person. He would have been who he was even if he was in a small shack. So kudos to him. But he, he called me over and he's like, hey, Dylan, come check out this. YouTube video. I want to show you this YouTube video of the skier. And he couldn't open the YouTube video. And he like tried to go to his like old web browser and he's like, 
on Bing or Yahoo trying to find this YouTube video and he would click on the ad and he's like, this isn't the video that I wanted. This is, <laughs> and I was just watching him fail to be able to do something so simple as open a YouTube video. And I thought everyone's faking it. Everyone's learning. Like no one is just like, we kind of view these, you know, successful people as like, oh, they're the Michael Phelps of the world. They're just built to be gold medalists and I'm just not built that way. And that's just not true. So I think that's very humbling and mm. reassuring what you just said, because I've felt that way as well. So, yeah, um, I think we could all do, we could all do with a good, good dose of humility, but also recognizing that, you know, everyone else is trying to figure it out too. Yeah. So awesome. Very cool. And there's one question that I didn't send to you in the podcast details, but as we've spoken, it's kind of occurred to me to ask it. So you are a new father and you're the president of IQ and you're working, you're a family man. So could you just tell us a little bit about that, like work-life balance and how you go about it and maybe your strategies or your philosophy about finding that balance in life? Oh man, I am, I am totally trying to figure that out. So yes, there's probably lots of other people who have much, much better answers. I think that's an interesting question in the context of the the industry we work in. There's the old adage is teachers are are overworked and underpaid. And I think you can you can apply that same moniker to a lot of the administrators and leaders who just pour out their heart and their energy and their soul every single day and are not always recognized for it. And so I think my approach to to work-life balance is Someone told me one time, I had a, someone of a mentor who told me that in life, you're, you're juggling different balls and some of those balls are rubber and some of those balls are glass and you don't want to drop, you don't want to drop the glass ones. <laughs> and so I would argue like for me personally, those glass balls are faith, family, my health, and I don't want to let those balls drop work is an important ball but our work tends to be a rubber ball and so uh that has been something that has kind of stuck with me i try and think about you know ultimately 20 years from now am i going to look back and say man I'm, I'm so glad i worked those those extra hours and ignored my kids probably not and so that's how i try and approach it and i get it wrong all the time and still figuring that out well I was going to add to that, but I don't even want to because I, I feel like that was such a, a good answer. You're making me so glad that I'm asking the questions that I'm asking. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything else that you'd like to, to share with our small but powerful and exhausted and hardworking audience? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, first off, thanks for having me on the show and you know, love what you guys are doing. I'll just end by giving a shameless plug because BiQ is, is starting our own podcast. And in, in many ways, we've been inspired by Dallin and his team. And that podcast launches next month in September. It's called Charter School Insider. And right. it is focused on the business side of running a charter school. So a lot of what we talked about today on you know, operations, finance, procurement, finding new real estate, all of the systems and processes that that have to be put into place, leadership development, teacher retention, all the the kind of necessaries of of operating a successful charter school. That's what we're going to dig into on uh, Charter School Insider. So 
look us up. We're on Spotify, Apple, and Google. And the first episode comes out first week of September. And we'd love to have you tune in. And if you're a school administrator and you want to come on our show, let us know. You can email us at podcast at byq.org. So that's my shameless plug for, for our show on your show. So thanks for the, <laughs> the space to do that, Dallin. No, of course. I'm really glad that you plugged it because if other people get a fraction of the value that I got just by speaking with you in this 30 minutes, then it will be well worth every listen. So, oh, well, thank you. Very, very kind words. Thank you. Yeah. So, everyone in the show notes will include a link to BiQ, will include a link to Charter School Insider, and we'll just kind of go from there. And I guess, Daniel, is there any a better way for them to reach out to you specifically or just podcast at BiQ? Yeah, if, you, if you'd like to contact me individually, I'm on LinkedIn, Daniel Caselli, or you can email me. My email is dcaselli at byq.org. Yep, thanks. Well, we'll include all that in the show notes. Thank you so much for being on the show, Daniel. Yeah, thanks, Dallin. This was fun. Let's do it again sometime. All right, bye now.